Hello? Yo, yo, yo. This is crazy. This is crazy. Thanks so much for joining us. Hope you are having a lovely day. Thanks for uh, joining us with the Pot Smoking Moms podcast here. We hope you are relaxing and taking a break from your busy day of being a mom. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. If this is your first time with us, please connect with us on all of our uh, social media. We love to uh, read DMs from you. Uh, if you go to potsmokingmoms.com, you can link up with us there. Please subscribe, rate, review, tell everybody about us. Uh, we are your hosts. I am Sunny D. Yo, and I am Captain J. <laughs> And this is a different um, setup. I feel like every time we record, it's like a different setup. It's different every time. <laughs> We're doing things a little bit differently this time. So uh, I don't I don't know if we'll ever, you know, uh, it, it, variety is a spice of life. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll do it however we, 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 we need to, I guess. Uh, so what are you smoking today? Are you doing, are you smoking right now, Captain J? I am. I'm enjoying a little bit of uh, white buffalo. White buffalo, nice. I uh, I have a little bit of Girl Scout cookies in uh, my brand new glass bowl. I'm so happy about uh, finally having gla- a glass bowl. I'm kind of like sick of that silicone shit. <laughs> I never got anything silicone because I didn't think I'd like it, so I didn't even bother. I prefer glass. I'm I'm using my little. Glass bong. Nice. What is it? Punchy booster, you guys called it? Oh yeah, that little that little bubbler. Punchy booster. Box. Packs a packs a punch. So how's your week been? It's been going all right. It's going all right. I've been trying to make my work home office space. Functional, you know, uh, decluttering, getting rid of stuff. Went to Ikea to try to get doors for the wardrobes. And I, when I realized it's like $400 just to get the freaking doors, I was like, time to figure out what we're going to do with all that crap. Because I would rather just get rid of the wardrobes and make this yeah. room so much more spacious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have you so many, the, the possibilities are endless. They have actually, Ikea has a nice closet system like that you can kind of tailor to your thing. Yes, but, that's what uh, this is. Basically, we thought we could put this in our closet. But then when we brought it home and realized we couldn't build it into the closet because it was too tall, it ended up outside of the closet next to it against the wall. Mm. And it worked fine when this room was just used for, you know storage and closet but now that i'm using the space for you know home office and podcast stuff and all that yeah do you have any plans for the fourth of july this weekend you know so um i don't believe are people doing fireworks i mean I no a lot of a lot of fireworks have gotten canceled because of gatherings Right. So that's kind of like, I don't know what's going to happen. I was planning on going to my sister's and hanging out there. I'm going to my pool. dad's. Yeah. I'm going to my dad's hang out at his pool. Yeah. Yeah. Something. I need to. I, I love July. I, lo- I love 4th of July. I love to party on 4th of July, but um, yeah, we're going to have to do a little on okay. the DL. Have you seen Eurovision on Netflix yet? No, what's that? Okay, so my cousin wanted me to bring it up. We had a moment. And he uh, said, I, should I haven't seen it yet. So I was hoping you had seen it yet. But apparently it's a new Will Ferrell movie. Oh, now I, I've seen the trailer for it. And it's Rachel uh, McAdams. Yes. Yeah. And they're, they're, it's, it's a... A show, a movie about Eurovision, which apparently is like a European American Idol kind of reality series that's been on television for a very long time. Oh yeah, yeah. So I'm like, oh my god, I must see this. I was, it I was looks really funny it already. It looks really funny, and I love Rachel McAdams. I think she's a beautiful. I love her. I think she's funny. 
and Will Ferrell is just hilarious. So, well, if any of our listeners have seen it, let us know if you liked it, and if not, watch it with us. Maybe we could watch that, and next time on the next episode, talk about it if it feels any good. Yeah, for sure. It's a a movie, though, right? Yeah, it's a movie. Yeah. All right. Let's do it. (laughs) Sounds good. That will be our catch up for next week. So this next segment is a little segment we like to call News Nugs. Yeah, that's it. With your two favorite anchors, a Sunny D and Captain J. So, uh, what do we got, uh, Captain Jake? Um, they were talking about they were doing uh, some. Po- they were doing an overhaul on uh, policing. Is that still going? On? Yeah. So, as we know, they're trying to pass legislation in in Congress to um, overhaul um, police legislation, and um, a few members of Congress went to the floor before they voted to argue that they should definitely include marijuana reform, federal marijuana reform in this legislation, because obviously it's a big contributing factor to many arrests um, of minorities and people of color um, when many states are already legalized it or have medically legalized it. And it's just been kind of a, uh, tool used for racial injustices. So they ended up uh, several several um, policymakers took to the floor to argue about legalize that that if, if we're even talking about legalizing marijuana, uh, policing has to be part of that. Yeah, and so those representatives all argued in favor in adding some of this, <clears throat> adding this reform to the policing policy. But even though there was agreements by many people on both sides they didn't add anything and uh ended up getting approved without any reform marijuana reform or anything any language added to it that's crazy so everybody just said ah we should talk about this and do this and then everybody was like okay never mind but we ain't gonna do shit this is insane yeah i I feel like they probably probably get nervous because it's so many layers of yeah of it yeah, and everybody wants to try to put their piece in it, you know, like what I don't know the, the, the entire details of the of the bill, but um, it did get passed like 236 to 181, but the, this is in the House. From what I understand, the Senate is already saying they're not going to like um, pass this. They, they're already going to stand off on it. There's too much they want to add and change. Right. And that's probably part of it, hopefully. We'll see. That's crazy. And then a story came out. A Library of Congress highlights racist news coverage used to justify criminalizing marijuana a century ago. That was really interesting. It has the craziest newspaper clipping. (laughs) We're laughing because it says, is the Mexican nation locoed by a peculiar Weed. Yeah. Dated September 25th, 1950. 1950. Deadly, yeah. Deadly marijuana rolled in cigarettes becomes the curse of the Southern Republican Republic. It may account for the bravery of greaser bandits who defy the United States. The insanity of Queen Carlotta is accounted for in the familiar historical legend of the poison tea. Mm-hmm. And then is a picture of, I swear he looks like Benicio Del Toro. <laughs> I don't know who that guy is. <laughs> yeah. He does. That man will be played by Benicio Del Toro in the movie. No, yeah. but it, uh, so it's newspapers from the earliest 20th, the early 20th century uh, documenting racist depictions of marijuana. This is where it all started. This is where all anti-Mexican propaganda, like trying to paint it. This is where it all like started before it was completely made illegal. You know, like the propaganda to make it illegal started. Yeah, and the propaganda and to associate it with immigrants and people, and so it's a way to 
criminalize them and arrest them. Make people afraid of them and the drug. It's crazy. Yeah, it all kind of goes one with the other. I think all of that kind of ties in with it's pretty insane. Victims of a Mexican drug from the Mexican Herald. Marijuana, our local hashish, continues to impel people of the lower orders to wild and desperate deeds. A great deal of crime here can safely be attributed to this nerve exciter. <laughs> wow. And then the and then the verbiage they used to use. Even though some of our laws reflect the verbiage that they used to use. So we think, oh, that is sounds pretty out of date. They should probably update. We should share this link so people could check it out. For sure. They could look at uh, the Benicio that, I don't know, agree with me that it looks like Benicio Del Toro or not. <laughs> or Jermaine. He looks like Jermaine Clement from uh, Flight of the Concords. All right. And uh, we have a special little treat for you guys. We have a very nice interview uh, coming up next. Uh, our guest is a PhD candidate in experimental psychology. Uh, she researches the neural mechanisms responsible for relapse to addictive drugs and is currently writing her dissertation and finishing her doctoral degree. Please welcome to our show the host of Cannabinoidology podcast, Alexandra Chisholm. All right, so uh, these are a lot of questions that we get from all of our listeners and stuff. Um, the first question being, how does THC get you high? Uh, this is a really good question and one that probably not a lot of people actually know the answer to. Maybe you know from when you actually smoke cannabis, for example, that it will get you high. But the way that THC works is that it is a partial agonist at what's called the CB1 receptor. CB1 receptor is part of the endocannabinoid system, and that's where THC mediates its psychoactive effects by acting at that particular receptor. Okay. Cool. And does CBD work the same way? No. CBD absolutely does not work the same way. CBD is a very complex molecule. Um, CBD can bind to the CB1 receptor, but not to the same degree that THC can bind to the same receptor. Um, you would need an incredible amount of CBD to be binding at the CB1 receptor to have um, any physiological effect. What CBD actually does is it binds to another site on the same CB1 receptor um, that's called uh, an allosteric site. And it acts as a negative allosteric modulator at that site. In layman's terms, essentially what that means is it stops THC's ability from acting through that receptor, essentially. So it's kind of like the receptor is, um, it's kind of like the classic lock and key analogy. The ligand, which would be the THC, binds the receptor. That's the lock. So you have the lock and the key. When CBD is bound to the lock side of it, it stops the key from being able to enter as easily as it normally would. Um, which is, you know, consistent with a lot of the data that's out there that supports that, you know, for example, CBD use ahead of time can really mitigate some of the negative effects that might happen with high levels of THC. So, yeah, CB it'd be good to use CBD in, so that you don't get like paranoid or something. I've heard people say that if you feel like you're too high and you get paranoid, smoke a little CBD or take a little CBD to help balance you out. Is that essentially... What yeah, I'm in in terms of the science. These are mostly kind of preclinical uh, data that support this. Um, but yes, in terms of human beings, it can absolutely help to reduce kind of the anxiety or paranoia that someone might have as a result of having too much THC in their system. But interestingly, CBD actually works in a variety of other ways. Um, it's quite complex as a molecule, and we still really don't know exactly how it's working um, but so just for example it also acts at the 5-HT1A receptor which is a receptor that belongs to the serotonergic system um, and that might actually be the key receptor that's responsible for mediating kind of the anxiety anti-anxiety effects and kind of antidepressant effects that you might get with CBD but there's still a lot of research that we need to do to kind of try and figure out what exactly it is that CBD is doing and where it's working because it has so many targets. 
Yeah, people say like CBD can cure almost everything. Everybody's like, oh, there's CBD skincare, CBD hair care, CBD for sleeping, CBD for pain. CBD is like. But my question in regards to that is um, obviously there's not that much research because we're now kind of starting to charter that territory, right? So, um, but do you see that there's more research happening now? Like, can you tell there's like a residual amount of, uh, there's like a big difference in how much research is being done now? Yeah. So I think in general, probably the general public doesn't know, but because THC or cannabis is still a schedule one controlled substance, that actually really limits our ability to conduct research in this particular field and to even be able to get access to work with THC or CBD, for example. Um, Most of the THC or CBD that we get actually come from one place and one place only. So, you know, if people are thinking that we're able to go out to the dispensary and grab some cannabis from there and bring it into laboratory, we are absolutely not able to do that. Um, So that's part of the reason why the science hasn't really caught up is because we've really been stuck in this... um, bureaucratic nightmare, as I might put it, um, of being able to actually get access to work with these. Um, In fact, I spoke with um, Dr. Ryan McLaughlin, and he had kind of indicated that it was almost a two-year process for him and his laboratory to be able to really get up and get started, which if you want to get the research done, that's a long time because the projects that we're working on also take a long time. Like I'm in Canada, so even with, um, if you any of the Canadian researchers that I talked to, even with legalization, this is still an issue. We haven't caught up. So even though, you know, people might think that, oh, legalization makes research easier, it hasn't in any way. If anything, it actually might have made it harder um, because there's just more paperwork to fill out now. So I really hope that that starts to get sorted out sooner and that maybe there becomes an expedited process um, because the research is really lagging behind in terms of what the general public is now doing with with cannabis. Um, so I hope that we catch up soon, but who knows? One of that, one of that is that there's not very much research at all about women consuming cannabis during pregnancy or while breastfeeding. And there's a lot of women now that it's legal in the States and many States that are choosing, you know, to, to do that, to be using cannabis while they're pregnant or still using cannabis while they're breastfeeding. Have you seen any really good research, um, out there at all about it that we could, yeah, that we could access. Um, so, so interestingly, Dr. Ryan McLaughlin's group actually just published kind of pre uh, a study on prenatal cannabis exposure and the potential, you know, consequences that are associated with that. And they do report that prenatal cannabis exposure seems to induce some type of behavioral changes in the offspring. Now, again, this is conducted in an animal model. Um, but a couple of studies that I've read are particularly concerning when it comes to females being pregnant or breastfeeding. Um, there was one study that was conducted in Colorado. Uh, I don't remember the year or the name. I'll look it up after um, if you want it. It was somewhere like around 70% of dispensaries were actually um, encouraging women to use or were actively um, suggesting that it's possible to use cannabinoid-based products for the treatment of nausea. Um, And that's incredibly concerning to me because there is absolutely no evidence out there um, to support the safety of, you know, use of any cannabinoid products during pregnancy or while breastfeeding. We do know that THC does cross the placental barrier and can affect the fetus. So, um, you know, the fact that dispensaries are kind of the ones providing this information is is kind of this slippery slope to me because the, the research really is not there to support that. Yeah. I, I think the most important thing when it comes to pregnancy uh, and breastfeeding is that we really do not know the answer to this question, whether, you know, one to two uses is going to lead to negative outcomes. And I would absolutely hate um, for the research to come out later mm-hmm. and that be associated with negative outcomes when someone thought that it was safe. As opposed to erring on the side of caution and, you know, not um, using cannabis while they're pregnant, for example. I think that's a safer option if we don't know. Definitely. So one of the main things that you do is you understand the neural uh, mechanism responsible for relapse to addictive drugs. So you kind of connect that 
And uh, so what is a CBD's role in relapse uh, in relapse to addictive drugs? Like how can CBD help someone? Um, so there are very few preclinical studies, which in animal models um, that have assessed this. And there's a lot of mixed data um, when it comes to the different drugs that are being assessed. So whether that be cocaine or amphetamine, whether that be opioids, for example, um, there do seem to be, or there does seem to be evidence that CBD can reduce conditioned drug seeking in animal models. Um, and that seems to, the doses seem to kind of vary depending on what drug you're looking at. Um, I think probably the most convincing data comes from um, Dr. Yasmin Hurd's lab at the ICANN School of Medicine. It was recently published, I think within the last two years, and they looked at a very similar model um, for individuals who suffer from heroin addiction, um, and they were abstinent heroin users, and they do in fact report that using CBD, um, both 400 and 800 milligrams, is able to reduce drug craving and you know conditioned um, drug relapse, essentially, in human models, um, which is very promising but we have absolutely no idea how CBD is doing that right now. Um, so there, there's certainly good evidence for it, um, but they're very preliminary right now. We really need a lot more research to kind of figure out what is happening. Um, now, some of those uh, within that study, um, some of the outcomes also include kind of reduced cortisol, reduced heart rate. So there seems to be kind of those anti-anxiety effects. But again, how that's happening, we're not sure. Interesting. Uh, that that is one of the things that I'm quite interested in studying is um, uh, in terms of opioid addiction, which is kind of my area of expertise. I'm very interested in you know how is CBD altering the circuitry that might be responsible for mediating relapse to addictive drugs, um, and I hope that's a project that I will get to work on shortly. Well, that's a big thing too, is we have had a lot of people on our podcast that have come from a place where they were into very hard drugs and cannabis helped them get out of that. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's definitely kind of this shifting framework of thinking that cannabis is the gateway drug, which is a theory. The gateway is a theory. It is not a cause and effect relation. Um, you could also probably posit that someone who has, you know, particular personality traits is more likely to seek out drugs in comparison to someone else. So those are just theories. Um, there is some evidence to support them, but cannabis is especially now being viewed as an exit drug from very addictive substances for people, which is quite promising. Um, but the data still just isn't there for us to really know how it's able to do this. Would I mean, I, I would you say that marijuana itself is also cannabis itself is also addictive? Because Absolutely. We're moving from one addic these very addictive drugs, they're moving over, and now they're just heavy cannabis users. Is, is cannabis itself addictive? Um, I think, I mean, that really depends on who you ask. If you're asking me, I absolutely do um, believe that cannabis is addictive. Um, that we know people um, who have very problematic behaviors that are associated with cannabis, and approximately 30% of individuals who use cannabis. Um, exhibit symptomatology that is consistent with um, cannabis use disorder. So I think the other way is how do we really look at addiction? Um, addiction seems to be something that, you know, it takes over your life. It impairs your ability to lead a normal life. Um, there are cravings that are associated with that, withdrawal symptomatology that's associated with that. Now, having said that, cannabis does pose at least in terms of the data, a low abuse liability or a low addictive potential. Um, we know that because in comparison, even though the number of 30% is the same for individuals who might use, for example, heroin or cocaine, we know that the general population numbers of individuals who use cannabis is much higher. So the percentage is actually lower in comparison because not as many individuals would be using cocaine or heroin, um, marijuana, or cannabis is one of the most used illicit drugs. So the fact that it's only 30% um, for that number is quite low, actually. Um, but absolutely, I think that it can certainly pose problematic behaviors. And we do need to be on the lookout for that. I think that without having said it, kind of the stoner community is a lot about 
talking about the benefits of cannabis. And I certainly do think there are a lot of benefits to it. But with that, we also need to recognize that there are some risks and that some individuals will go on to have problematic behaviors and kind of posing this idea that everything is really good is not a great outlook on the situation. Mm -hmm. I think having kind of all of the information, all of the facts and knowing about that can really help to maybe stop some of those individuals from moving on to that problematic behavior if we can identify it early enough. Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, I believe it's also two addictive personalities as well that can take something. And I mean, everything needs to be balanced. And I feel like um, you, when you look at stoner communities out there, uh, you do see excessive use. I think when we first jumped into this whole thing, it was kind of weird because, you know, we're moms and we've, we've, we've smoked cannabis for a very long time it's like part of our friendship was involved it was a social you know situation where we would con we would smoke all the time okay. together um but i think as parents and jumping into this world you see like people using excess like like you see some crazy stuff and i feel like it's all kind of people love the idea of access this and access that so coming into this world, it was very interesting because we saw like, when we're not, I mean, we, we always advocate like for responsible use, the whole dabbing thing. We, we always right. advocate for responsible use, especially us because we're parents and we cannot be inebriated. Like we use a little bowl here and there to kind of like get us from one thing to the next. And, you know, and, and, and this also brings up uh, the, the idea of tolerance breaks. It's like a thing that yeah. we well, because, you know, excessive use ends up turning into excessive use. And when you see you, you, you spending more money on cannabis and it's because you're using more and you're being a little bit more relaxed with it. So from time to time, we always talk about taking a tolerance break and how that can help you and your body. Um, what, what are your thoughts about tolerance breaks? I think the general idea of tolerance breaks with most recreational cannabis users um, is to really kind of, you know, for example, a certain amount of cannabis that they used to smoke that doesn't get them high anymore. They stop for a brief period of time, for example, and then they go back to using cannabis again. And that kind of same amount will get them high again. Um, I think that's my general understanding of what the recreational um, cannabis community looks at. In terms of kind of chronic cannabis use, or as you get into that chronic cannabis use disorder, um, we do see some changes in kind of the neurobiology. Um, and, you know, it's problematic in thinking that taking the idea right now of taking a tolerance break can really help to mitigate some of those negative effects. I hope that they do, but really the research isn't there. Um, in fact, I actually looked quite extensively um, through the literature on the concept of a tolerance break, and I could find almost nothing on it. Um, so as you probably know, with chronic cannabis use comes down regulation of CB1 receptors, which essentially means that if you had 10 CB1 receptors that mediate the psychoactive effects of THC, you kind of move down to five. You're, you're less likely them. to, yes, you're, yes, le you're, you're less likely to get yeah, you're less likely to get high from them. And now when you stop using cannabis or you're abstinent for a certain period of time in, you know, cannabis dependent individuals, for example, somewhere between two to 28 days is what the literature shows in that those receptor levels come back to normal. Two to but 28 I, days? No, yes. Two to 28? Yeah. Two, two to so 28 days, days. Yeah. Big gap. Yeah. And obviously that really depends kind of on the individual, how much they use. And that's part of the problem when you study cannabis is there's various routes of administration that people use, various amounts that they use. So it's very hard to do kind of those controlled studies that are really needed to kind of assess um, particular outcomes in a controlled capacity. Um, but having said that, you know, I've I've recognized from being on TikTok that people think that a return to normal receptor level means a return to normal receptor functioning. And that is not supported by the animal data that's out there right now. In fact, the animal data supports that chronic cannabis use can permanently alter the functioning of those CB1 receptors. So um, the idea of a tolerance break as a scientist is 
um, interesting and one that I hope the field will kind of start to look at um, in terms of, you know, what is happening. If you're taking multiple mini tolerance breaks, is that more beneficial than if you take, you know, uh, one really long break? Kind of what are the effects? We really have no idea right now. But in general, with chronic cannabis use, you also have other changes in other neural circuitry that happens, including within your dopaminergic and your glutamatergic systems. And we don't really know if those kind of come back to normal or what they're doing with prolonged abstinence. So that's another key question that we really need to address just because we're getting the CB1 receptor levels back to normal. Does that also mean that the glutamatergic systems or the dopaminergic systems are going to return to normal or are those kind of permanent changes? So it's really like we really do need more research on the uh, idea of a tolerance break. Um, but I do hope that, you know, people take frequent breaks because, I mean, if you kind of look at habitual behavior, if you're able to take a break, you're able to stop doing the habitual right. behavior, if that is the case. If you kind of just, if you think about the concept of what a habit is in general, you know, if you go out and you smoke every night before you go to bed, for example, that becomes a habitual behavior that becomes very difficult to break for some people. And if you can take those frequent breaks, then I assume even though maybe this not supported by the data that, that you would be perhaps at a lower risk for developing some of those more excessive use or chronic cannabis use disorder, for example. Which is the one where you're throwing up, but we've seen people where they're... Um, oh, that's not hypermesis. No. Yeah, what that's... You like you, that's it. When you smoke too much weed, you there's a symptom where you feel queasy and they recommend that you take showers isn't that it's hypermesis that yeah that's cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome hypermesis yeah i can't yeah, I yeah. never say this like you're thinking yeah I thought, i'm sorry <laughs> i thought you were thinking of hypermesis squariardum the one that's when you're pregnant and you can't you're like constantly like have morning sickness no, no, no. i was thinking about the no, other one, one yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, the chronic, she's yeah. saying that's just somebody that, that chronically uses cannabis. Right. They smoke so much cannabis that they they start throwing up and it's, have you, do you know much about that? Like, do you know? Um, in terms of the brain mechanisms, we know very, very little about that. There was a recent paper that came out from Dr. Linda Parker's uh, laboratory that looked at some of the potential mechanisms, but right now we have no idea. And we also don't know about the prevalence of cannabinoid or CHS. I'll just call it for short. Um, we don't know about the prevalence because it's often misdiagnosed as cyclical vomiting syndrome. Um, because, you know, for example, somebody goes to the doctor, maybe they don't want to disclose that they're using cannabis if they're in a particular state, for example. So we don't know how often this is happening. Um, but in terms of um, cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, we do know that there seem to be three key phases. So there's kind of this prodromal phase, um, which is phase one, kind of where you might experience kind of nausea and ex anxiety, for example. And this can last for, at least according to literature, last for months at a time. And then you move into that hyperemesis or emesis phase where that's characterized by, you know, cyclical vomiting, um, which is, you know, not great. Um, but there also seems to be kind of this behavior that people who have this syndrome engage in, and that's taking frequent hot showers or baths that seem to kind of reduce the symptomatology. Um, now, the only known treatment for this at the time is to abstain from using cannabinoids. Um, and it seems that as you abstain, you do recover. Um, now, some people will recover and go back to using cannabis again, for example, and then the symptomatology does at least according to literature, seem to kind of um, continue that pattern again. So you might relapse. I hate to use the word relapse in there because that encompasses something else, but the symptomatology um, seems to come back again. From what I've read about it or seen about it, it's usually from people that use like high concentrate cannabis products like uh, abbing and stuff uh, like that. Yeah, absolutely. So it seems to more develop in individuals who have persistent, chronic, very heavy cannabis use as opposed to someone who might, you know, not use as much uh, cannabis or is maybe a daily user or a low to moderate user, for example. Interesting. Cool. So we um, also have another question 
really, this is your question. It's a personal question. You saw it. You saw our video, right? Our tape got taken away from us. I think personally, (laughs) I feel like she can smoke anybody under the table. Uh, I feel like she has a higher tolerance than most people. No. But again, I don't know. This 100 milligrams that we ate on the beach, like, she should have at least felt something. Felt something. But it's 100 milligrams is quite a substantial amount of THC. Yeah. Like if we, if I were to smoke that, I would, I would have been extremely medicated. (laughs) Extremely. Um, Yeah. But for some reason, edibles just have never worked for me my entire life. I've tried it many times, different ways with different people and it's just never worked. And I don't know why. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I will tell you that science also doesn't know why yet but we have some potential idea of why that might happen. So one of them is um, the endocannabinoid deficiency idea that's been pioneered by Dr. Ethan Russo. So essentially individuals who might have an endocannabinoid deficiency, like someone who has frequent migraines or fibromyalgia, for example, the endocannabinoid system isn't functioning properly. And therefore when you take THC, you might not feel the THC to the same degree that someone else who you know, theoretically has a normal functioning endocannabinoid system. Um, this this idea, though, um, to me, if you're smoking um, cannabis, that should also hold true for that theory, um, which clearly it does not. Um, but it's a starting point. Um, the other um, interesting data that comes uh, about is pregnenolone, which is a steroid. Um Recently, it was published in Science in 2014 that pregnenolone can actually um, inhibit the ability of THC to act through the CB1 receptor um, to some degree. So it seems like um, THC might or pregnenolone might be able to have kind of this like negative feedback loop on THC um, in that you might not feel the effects of THC to the same degree. But those are kind of the only two scientific studies that I could really think of, aside from the fact that if you think about how your body actually metabolizes THC versus when you smoke it versus when you ingest it, they're two very different ways, mm-hmm. right? So when you smoke it, THC enters um, your bloodstream through your lungs um, and it's highly bioavailable. So bioavailable essentially means how much of a given substance actually gets into your bloodstream. Being intravenous injection would be 100% bioavailable. Inhalation of THC or cannabis is probably the best method in terms of bioavailability. When you take something orally, the bioavailability drops um, drastically and bioavailability for both THC and CBD is quite low. Mm -hmm. And that's because it has to be absorbed in your gut and then passed through your portal vein to your liver where it undergoes a first pass metabolism before it goes to the rest of your body. So having said that, perhaps your body is just um, better able to metabolize THC that way um, in comparison to somebody else, for example. Mm-hmm. But um, that would be, again, an interesting individual difference. But um, we really just don't know why right now. A lot of people ask me if I've had my gallbladder removed um, when I tell them <laughs> edibles don't work. And they ask me if I've ever had liver issues, like liver problems. Yeah, I mean, the liver would make sense when it comes to kind of how THC is metabolized. It's also quite possible that you don't absorb the THC in your gut or perhaps it like there are so many things about cannabis that we just don't know yet. Um, But there's is a little bit more of a gamble, too, because um, I put it that edibles aren't very consistent either. Like it doesn't well, it depends what you take. It depends how much it depends like. Sometimes I have to eat like a fat containing meal in order for my body to process it or your body doesn't process it until later. Like it's not consistent, I think. I mean, that's certainly consistent with what the literature reports in that um, when you take, for example, THC or CBD, if you have kind of this high fatty meal or kind of like a a triglyceride meal, for example, it seems to help your body um, to absorb the THC and CBD. That's certainly consistent with the literature. Um, but the other part of taking edibles is that they're actually not well labeled in terms of what they contain, which is a huge problem. Um, I've read some very scary reports, actually. It's like something like, you know, 
I can't even remember the percentage, but it's like a certain percentage of products are not even labeled correctly or what they are labeled, you know, do not contain the amount that they suggest they contain. So you really um, can't go by what the label is, you know, telling you. So for example, that 100 milligram THC edible, maybe it didn't even contain 100 milligrams of THC. Um, the only way to really know that is to actually test them, um, which nobody probably has the money for if you're, you know, recreationally using cannabis, for example. Yeah. Um, but yeah, edibles are kind of this whole different game because a lot of people, when they first um, start taking edibles, they don't realize that they take so long to kick in because essentially what happens is your THC is metabolized into a metabolite called 11-hydroxy-THC, which is also psychoactive. Um, so you kind of end up having this buildup of THC in your system, and then you get a buildup of 11-hydroxy-THC, and those effects actually peak at three hours. Um, so you should re really wait three hours um, to make sure that the, you're not going to have an effect before you take more. And that's kind of where a lot of, I think, first-time users get into this problematic kind of greening out phase where they ingest too much THC, and kind of once it's in there, there's no way to get it out. So... <laughs> Yeah. Sleep it off. And that's why I'm saying it. Consistency is never like you can, it's never consistent. Like especially black market edibles. Are you kidding me? I've seen people sell some five, they say it's 500, 600 milligrams for like $25. And that's not, there's no possible way. Like to me, I feel like it's very mislabeled in some cases, but I mean, it's cautious and then slow and low because yeah, you could eat an edible one time and within 30 minutes to an hour, you're good. But then another time you take it, it could be three hours before it kicks in. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely had a lot of people, um, you know, send me messages or whatever um, with regards to kind of the greening out. And they'll say like, oh, you know, I ate half a chocolate bar. And I'm like, uh, yeah, you should probably have taken maybe a little square to see how it affects you first. Yeah. Um, and then and then certainly um, don't take that. Again, I recommend anytime somebody asks me about this, wait 24 hours um, simply for their own benefit because I've heard way too many people who have kind of those really, really, really um, okay. not so nice effects of THC. Yeah. Um, and it kind of ruins um, THC for You're them. To go low, go slow. That's what they say. Start low. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. People get a little too, too crazy with the too <laughs> So in, in the same realm, um, is it, uh, well, again, this is something that we've heard. Is it true that, that women, listener that said it. Oh yeah. Is it true that women build up a tolerance faster than men? Like do women metabolize cannabis differently than men do? Is that something that we know? Uh, I mean, I'm not super familiar with a lot of the sex difference research as it pertains to cannabis. Um, in general, most of the studies um, that I have read do um, indicate that there are biological sex differences when it comes to cannabinoids. And I think Dr. Ziva Cooper, as well as Dr. Margaret Haney, um, they've been kind of champions in this idea. And there really has only been kind of research that's come out more recently about it. Um, in general, women seem to be kind of more sensitive to the subjective effects of cannabis. Um, and in addition to that, cannabis use um, decreases sensitivity to pain in men, but not women. Those are kind of the two things that I could find. But in terms of kind of the tolerance really? aspect, I couldn't find much. Uh, yeah. That's so interesting. Like, <laughs> <laughs> because when I have my period and I have cramps, I feel like it helps. Definitely using cannabis. It helps with that pain. Yeah. And yeah, I, that's I absolutely my pain for I had a, an accident, a car accident, somebody hit me and I have a shoulder and neck pain and it, it helps. Well, because cannabis generally does help for pain. It's just guys. Yeah, cannabis cannabis has very good evidence anyway. <laughs> in general, I mean, we have childbirth here. Yeah, yeah we're smart too, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there there's certainly evidence to suggest that there are sex, biological sex differences, but um, to the extent um, when it comes to tolerance, I just don't know the answer to that question yet. But I, I'm sure kind of the idea um, and the, the other part of that is the kind of the really controlled clinical studies to assess sex differences. Um, there haven't really been a lot of them done. And so as more of them get done, we'll kind of get a better understanding of, of where that actually stands. 
what are your some of your like favorite resources to go to to find current information or current studies or some of your favorite researchers to follow or is there any current like research or is there any current research right Uh, now that are occurring that you're looking forward to seeing the results of yeah um i think there's some really interesting work that's being done um at johns hopkins um as it pertains to kind of the entourage effect um, and I think that data will come out soon because right now I think most people don't realize that the entourage effect is actually more of a hypothesis. Mm-hmm. There's certainly data to support it, but not the controlled clinical study that's really needed to support it. Um, and I hope that will be coming out soon. Um, well, I spoke with Dr. Entourage, you mean like how all of the parts of the plant work together? And together? Exactly. As opposed to kind of just the individual components. Um, so I hope that data will be coming out soon. Um, You know, I've had quite a few guests on my podcast now um, because I find their research very, very interesting. Um, Dr. Matt Hill does some really, really cool research. Um, Some of the other uh, areas that I'm interested in, Dr. Ryan McLaughlin, he recently kind of came up with this um, animal model of cannabinoid self-administration. And we really lacked in the field um, because previously most of those studies were done by injecting high amounts of THC into animals or by trying to get them to self-administer THC intravenously, which are methods that human beings do not use to consume cannabis. Um, So that really limited our research capacity. But now that we have this model, um, which just came out, um, I think that's really going to push research forward um, in terms of assessing a lot of the neurobiological underpinnings of um, cannabis and cannabis use disorder perhaps listening to that episode but i found it really interesting the vapor that they're using like i didn't hear how they ended up setting it all up but it was like a um, a machine that they used before to get rats drunk right to test alcohol's effects and they were changing it to to vaporize against uh cannabis yeah yeah, they essentially take the um e-cigarette technology that's available now and they can get um rats to actually self-administer discrete puffs of cannabis vapor now, um, which is fantastic um, that we're able to do that because that's really the only way that we can really assess what's happening in the brain because we just simply can't do it in humans um, in the controlled capacity. So um, that's really interesting. In terms of a resource, one of my favorite resources that's out there is a book called Cannabinoids in the Brain by um, written by Dr. Linda Parker. Um, I had the uh, opportunity to be taught by Dr. Parker in my fourth year of undergrad. Um, She's absolutely fantastic. Um, And that book is really well written and kind of gives a very good overview of where we stand in terms of cannabinoids and what we know across the different research areas. So it's kind of like this, you know, one book and all where you kind of get to learn, okay, what do we know about cannabinoids and anxiety what do we know about cannabinoids and post-traumatic stress disorder or what do we know about cannabinoids as it pertains to you know neurological illnesses or disease um so that's one of the books that i i really like to recommend okay i've been seeing your series on tiktok about your theory about there's no such thing as indica sensitivity (laughs) okay yeah so i was like baffled by this concept because to me I prefer indicas and I don't know why. I mean, I just prefer the way they make me feel as opposed to how sativas make me feel. So I, yeah, it must uh, be a so it's not, ne- yeah. it's not necessarily that there's, it's not, yeah, it's not necessarily that there's not sativas or there's not indicas. Um, <laughs> it's really just that in the translation from the botanical taxonomy to the slang terminology that we use, we actually got it wrong and somebody made a mistake along the way. Um, if you go back to 1753, when cannabis was first classified by Carl Linnaeus, cannabis sativa at the time actually referred to um, what is classified as hemp. Yeah. So when people say, oh, sativas get me high or they give me a head high or whatever, I always think back to the original taxonomy and I'm like, ah, that's not really the case. Um, and Dr. John McPartland actually has a very good book chapter that he's written on this that really explains kind of how we got it wrong um how scientists kind of got it wrong so you know i'm certainly not the first one to bring up the idea that we've had this wrong perhaps for a while um 
In fact, in some of the papers, if you read them, the scientists who who have wrote them said there was just so much backlash from the from the kind of cannabis community that they just kind of gave up. And fundamentally, I think that well, people, you know, do report that, you know, sativas or indicas, I do think there's perhaps strain specific effects. Um, but the idea that cannabis or THC works differently in your body to me, um, in terms of the pharmacology would be odd. Um, because you get high THC, CB1 receptors are located, you know, in your brain. Um, the fact that, you know, one THC from one plant would work differently is an odd concept to me. I would think it has more to do with the entourage effect, right? About exactly. how THC works yeah. with other, you know, the terpenes that are in there and the, all the other parts of the plant that, that have an effect on you. So Yeah, so this is kind of really um, the goal of kind of the sativa indica debate. Number one, to kind of make people aware of the kind of taxonomy issues in the slang and how they don't necessarily align with the cannabis plants that are being grown. The slang are separate from the taxonomies. Mm -hmm. um, and I think people a lot of the time assume that they're the same thing and they're not. Um, but going back to that point, I think it's actually um, moving forward. It's a better concept, or at least my own idea is that it's a better way to look at the cannabis plant um, or a strain as a chemovar, which stands for a chemical variety. Um where you're really looking at the whole constituents that are included in that particular cannabis plant, for example, and you know the potential effects because you have a good understanding of, well, how much THC does it have? How much CBD does it have? What is the terpene profile? Because terpenes are also biologically active compounds. So they do contribute, or at least anecdotally do contribute to the effects that you feel. So to say that it's really just about how much THC or what a plant looks like is not really an accurate um, way to go about it anymore. The science is just caught up a bit. And I feel like the cannabis community is lagging behind on this idea. Um, I think it's actually more beneficial in terms of looking at the chemical profile of the plant um, for medical purposes, as well as recreational purposes. Um, and I think that could really help people who do want to use cannabis or the beneficial effects that it can have, um, because I do think that's kind of where the growing community is going to be going. Soon you're going to start to see, you know, high CBD strains with high beta-caryophylline profiles, for example. Like, that's where we're moving in the future, at least as far as I can see. That's going to be awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that, I found that really interesting, that little series you were doing. I was like, what? How I have, I have slowly sativa like <laughs> how did that I happen? have slowly uh, lagged behind on um, doing the kind of how we got from the botanical taxonomy to the slang. I'm yeah. going to try and catch up on that this weekend. I've been quite overwhelmed with the number of questions. I certainly didn't expect to go from like I don't know five thousand followers to almost twenty thousand now in like oh, congratulations. a week. Isn't it crazy how TikTok does that? It's a little overwhelming. Uh, yeah, certainly it is. Um, I have noticed, though, being a scientist on TikTok, some people seem to have this kind of like general idea about what scientists are. Um, <laughs> I guess we get stereotyped a little bit um, where people make, you know, particular comments about me in general and how I look um, with regards oh, to my love. People, I mean, that's crazy. You get so many comments that people love to attack. I can't tell you how many cartoons I look like. Yeah, with regards to kind of like how I look and how I could be educated because I look like I'm 12. You know, I'm not 12. <laughs> I have I have been studying and in school for a very, very long time. Um, but yeah, I think there's, there's just a lot of kickback when it comes to talking about the potential negatives when it comes to cannabis mm -hmm. because so many people are so interested in the positives. But, you know, that's not really the full story. I think knowing... And I'm not on TikTok to tell anybody what to do. Like, I really don't care what people do. Um, but I think, you know, not acknowledging that there are two sides to every story isn't a great idea to go about it. I think knowing all of the information, doing all of the research, and then making an informed decision because you have both sides of the story is really the best way to go about it. It's 100%. fair and balanced reporting. You have to talk about all the yeah. sides. 
I often get asked on uh, TikTok if I personally smoke, and I refuse to answer this question simply because, um, as a scientist, that biases my information. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to be a biased um, scientist. I want to try and be as objective as possible. So, if anybody's listening who's going to ask me, I will not answer your question. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I think, yeah, absolutely. It is, it, it does put you in a different category. So yeah, that I wouldn't say it either because it's not about that. We're trying to talk about facts and the science and research that's been done on it. Exactly. So, yeah. Thanks so much for taking the time uh, out of your day to sit with us and talk with us. We really um, appreciate uh, your time and energy and your education because uh, we've learned a lot today. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. It was very informative and I love your your show and your TikTok. So keep it up. I want to learn yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much. Uh, I really feel like out there, there's so many misconceptions right now. And I hope to be, you know, at least one of the individuals who is helping to provide the facts and help set the record straight. So thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. No problem. Thanks. Uh, you can catch up with Alexandra and um, any of her current research. Uh, you can either find her at I am Alex Chisholm or at Cannabinoid Pod on Twitter. She actually has her podcast on Anchor like we do. So you can also find her podcast on anchor thank you so much uh miss chisholm all right this next segment is a little segment we like to call hey d yeah so you can get a lap dance in coronavirus days did you know that what yeah no is it like is it like a mad max style Honestly, from what I can tell, yeah, apparently they have to have all this gear and stuff. But but wait, 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 what kind of gear? So, okay, so it defeats the purpose of a lap dance. So they have to wear masks? Yes, they have to wear masks. Uh, the guest has to wear a mask or the client has to wear a mask and or face shield which I don't understand. I mean, you might as well, like, she might as well be in a box, in a plastic <laughs> box. And gloves. And gloves? Yeah, gloves. The guys have to wear gloves? Oh, the girls. I, the guys, I don't think, are supposed to touch the girls. <coughs> or what well, we're oh. guys here. It could be guys or gals. The clients. Okay, but the clients have to wear masks and gloves? No, the clients just have to wear, I think, glo glo uh, masks. Just masks. Okay. And the strippers wear the <laughs> masks and the gloves? Yes, the dancers. Um, they, <laughs> they wear the gloves. The dancers, I'm sorry. <laughs> Are they offended if they get called stripper? I don't know. I have no idea. I was just... Well, <laughs> <laughs> so the dancers must suit up accordingly in proper PPEs such as a mask or face shield so it's either or and gloves and then the clients must wear masks as well and the guidelines for lap dance are the same applied to getting a massage it says so you know I guess you know, massages are close you're touching not grinding but well, right, but like, but uh, maybe I'm not familiar on how, how lap dances work in the public, you know, forum or the whatever in, in a strip club. <laughs> because you've never got a lap dance, see? Uh, no, I haven't actually. Me <laughs> Which is surprising. Me either. <laughs> yeah, so I don't, so the girls can't. So the girls can touch the client, the the dancer. Sorry, excuse me. The dancer can touch <laughs> the client, or because of the massage, the massage, the masseuse touches you, but you can't touch the masseuse because that would be weird. 
So, <clears throat> so inspectors you actually go. Yeah, but yeah, I get it. It is. Wait. They have inspectors yeah, the official? to make sure that they follow these rules. So the the official admitted that a lap dance is intimate, but until a club goer or employee gets COVID nineteen and the venue is shut down, stripping is happening. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Well, a promoter who wished not to be identified said that the thrill of going to strip clubs has faded and he really doesn't know when or if the popular pastime can be a thing under the current circumstances. I know a guy who used to drop a mortgage at the clubs, but these days it has a different vibe. You're there for the beauty. You don't want to see half a face. The scene has definitely changed. (laughs) so funny i feel like this it should be oh my god what a character this guy i know article that we got this from by madeline mart oh my god this is so funny you're there for the beauty you don't want to see half a face you don't want to see i want to see a whole nipple and a whole face Oh, the scene has God. definitely come Yeah, it has, buddy. <laughs> Meanwhile, you can get a lap dance. You can get a lap dance nowadays, but they've stopped selling alcohol in our state. Like, well, right? to try to keep people from going to bars and being out. Because if you're drinking, you're more likely to stay out longer to continue drinking. And so they stopped selling alcohol statewide. And now also the beaches are closed. Again, in Miami, Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach, but only for the 4th of July weekend. So they're only closed for 4th of July weekend. The beaches, yeah. But, but that's so crazy. They're, they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to suspend alcohol now again. Uh, you should have just suspended restaurants and continue making them be like takeout. Yeah, basically, they're still takeout. Like, so vendors who derive more than fifty percent of their sales from oh, like bars, bars, may continue to sell alcoholic beverages in sealed containers for consum- consumption off premises. So they can do to go like breweries and stuff that they can do growlers, and you know they'll fill a growler for mm-hmm. you to go. You know, um, licensed restaurants may also continue to operate on premises consumption of food and beverages at tables. So like. Even restaurants, I guess, can't have alcohol because if you're drinking alcohol while you're consuming dinner, you're most likely going to continue drinking, I guess, and hanging out longer. I guess that's the concept. Yeah. So we're promoting drinking and driving now. Fantastic. (laughs) Why is it drinking and driving? They're saying to take it home. No, I know. I know. I know. But it's like drinking and driving if you're drinking at the restaurant and then driving home. Right. They're not letting you drink at the restaurant anymore. I know. I mean, they shouldn't even be eating at the restaurant, <laughs> I think. from I, Honestly, I don't know if it's because I have two small children and going out to a restaurant is like a whole day ordeal. But like, uh, just why? Just take that shit and get the fuck out of there. Like, go back home. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know know what the rush is to go eat at a restaurant. Like bars, I get because there's a social aspect to going to drink, but that shouldn't have even been like oh reopened in the first place. I mean, we got like I think the other day we had over ten thousand in a day. Yeah, stop going out, (laughs) people. (laughs) You know it's crazy because I don't think stoners. (laughs) go out like that I think it's just fucking people who just drink their face off because honestly stoners don't want to be bothered (laughs) pot is an essential good (laughs) that they're allowing well you can still buy alcohol in stores you just can't go to restaurants and stuff yeah alcohol consumption at like 
locations at bars is not allowed. I know. I, I can't remember the last time I went to a bar anyway. I really don't care to. I'll drink at home if I want to drink. Smoke my herb. Smoke my herb. Well, this has been an interesting uh, episode of Pot Smoking Mom's podcast. Yeah, it has. Our new format. Uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll see <laughs> how we do. Uh, we thank you so much for joining us. We hope that you uh, will join us again. Uh, like we said before, connect with us on social media. Uh, rate, subscribe, review. And um, we got a lot of stuff in store for you for the rest of this season. So we hope you stay tuned. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a great day. See ya.